Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording October 25th, 2022, you'll hear from the director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, James Hirsch, discussing his organization's role in delivering military capabilities to American allies, and more recently, their support to Ukraine and their war against Russia. This episode is an extract from our annual procurement conference, which took place on October 25th in Ottawa. This event was made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Mines Program, our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, and Davies Shipyard, as well as conference sponsors, the Royal Norwegian Embassy in Ottawa and Innovation Norway, ACO Frontac, BAE Systems Canada, Bombardier, the Boeing Company, PAL Aerospace, and Babcock Leonardo Canadian Aircrew Training. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davies Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Okay, so to continue on with the program today, I'm very happen, happy to introduce uh, momentarily, virtually, fingers crossed, uh, Mr. James Hirsch, the Director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Uh, as part of the framing for the conference today, um, and it occurred to uh, both myself and some of the other folks that consult putting these uh, programs together, uh, that we are working with the United States, the United States government, in addition to just American industry, uh, very extensively on both existing programs, uh, ships uh, for airplanes uh, and beyond that. Uh, and we will, I'm sure, as part of the modernization of NORAD in particular, be leveraging extensively the U.S. government support uh, that they provide on a lot of the acquisitions that Canada makes through various American programs. And as such, very happy to have uh, Mr. Hirsch provide a, a high-level overview of that mechanism, one that I think uh, is important already for Canada and to become uh, even more so as we look ahead. Uh, I will just do a very brief summary of his uh, biography. Um, there's more in the program and, and beyond if folks want more detail. Uh, he was appointed the Director of Defense Security Cooperation Agency in January of this year. Prior to that, had a number of senior positions the Acting Secretary of Defense Representative in Europe, the Acting Defense Advisor for the U.S. Mission to, to NATO, and numerous other senior positions in the U.S. The DOD bureaucracy, for which he twice received the Secretary of Defense Medal for Distinguished Civilian Service, uh, covering his service at DTSA and the U.S. Mission to NATO, um, in addition to two presidential rank awards. And I'm hoping that when I now cue him up, his video will appear on the screen beside me here. And can we get audio check, sir? Uh, yes, can you hear me? We can, excellent. Um, thank you for joining us here today and over to you. All right, thank you very much. Good afternoon to everybody attending uh, the conference today. Uh, as was said, my name is Jim Hirsch and I'm the director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. First, I'd like to say thank you to Mr. Perry and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute for inviting me to address your defense procurement conference this afternoon. It's a humbling experience to address this audience along with senior defense officials from the Canadian government and the governments of our mutual allies and partner nations. I wanted to start by stating the obvious, that Canada is one of our most important partners. 
While the United States talks extensively about its alliances and partnerships around the globe, we as two nations share a history, an international boundary, and an unbreakable bond built on shared values and community. The United States is committed to supporting Canada, aligned with its strong, secure, and engaged defense policy objectives. We also support Canada's extensive modernization of its maritime and air force programs with emphasis on expanding operational, expanding operational capability in the Arctic region in alignment with strategic US cooperation efforts, which include our mutual climate change initiatives to monitor the effects of climate change on a global scale. Before I go further, allow me to spend a little time discussing our agency's mission and jurisdiction for those who may not be familiar with it. The Department of Defense established DSCA just over 50 years ago on September 1st, 1971, to direct, administer, and supervise the security cooperation programs of the United States Department of Defense, including the transfer of defense articles and services to our allies and partners. And among the initial four uh, programs that we established were the International Military Education and Training Grant Program for assistance to our partners and allies in training, Foreign military sales, which are the direct transfers through our system of uh, defense articles and services, both of those still exist today. Across the subsequent five decades, the mission of the agency has grown tremendously. Not only does DSCA administer foreign military financing funds provided by the Department of State and excess defense articles, which are items that are no longer needed by the Department of Defense, we continue to do the IMET and FMS programs. In addition, we do a number of other programs, including Department of Defense funded uh, train and equipment and institutional capacity building programs around the world. And uh, we do also humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, demining assistance. And we have a Defense Security Cooperation University, which oversees the education, training, and certification of the entire security cooperation workforce which currently numbers around 20,000 people around the world. And we also train through that university, our ally, uh, the partners and allies uh, own military and civilian personnel. In managing these programs, DSCA leads a broader security cooperation enterprise, including the implementing agencies who actually do the contracting and delivery of the items sold under foreign military sales, so the Navy, Army, and Air Force, and uh, a lot of different U.S. organizations that are in our uh, geographic combatant commanders around the world, and the enterprise also includes folks at the U.S. Congress and the White House. DSCA's mission is clearly defined by the U.S. National Security Strategy, which the White House just reissued. One of the key lines of effort in that strategy is to build the strongest possible coalition of partners and allies. And if you read the strategy, you will see that there are almost 100 mentions of the word ally and over 120 mentions of the word partner in the strategy, showing the great emphasis that we place on resolving our shared challenges with our partners and allies. A major pillar supporting that line of effort is recognizing that to preserve and increase international cooperation in an age of competition, we must cooperate with all countries to address shared challenges, work to strengthen international institutions, 
and deepen our cooperation with like-minded democracies. Recent U.S. arms sales reflect the strength of cooperation among our allies and partners. There has actually been a rebound in U.S. arms sales in fiscal year 22 to just over $50 billion, which reflects pre-pandemic levels. The unified global response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has demonstrated the importance of the coalition of nations of which our two nations are a part. We stand firmly in its fight with Ukraine, its fight for democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. And we, along with our allies and partner nations, including Canada, continue to expedite security assistance to Ukraine with both lethal and non-lethal aid. Together, we are working to facilitate and integrate the aid that allies and partners provide to Ukraine. In this year alone, uh, in F, excuse me, in calendar year 22 alone, we have provided about $20 billion of security assistance to Ukraine, either through presidential drawdowns out of US stock or under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative Fund, which is appropriated by Congress. That is an unprecedented level of security cooperation. And we turn it on very regular and expedited basis. In fact, uh, our organization has been able to execute presidential drawdowns for Ukraine in less than four or five hours after the president has announced his determination to do so. We are working around the clock to fulfill Ukraine's priority security requests and facilitating the delivery of weapons from U.S. stocks when they are available, as well as the delivery of weapons by allies and partner nations when their capabilities better suit Ukraine's requirements is something we place an emphasis upon. Canada has contributed incredibly significant aid and support to the defense of Ukraine. The U.S. government and U.S. allies and partner nations have also trained Ukrainian soldiers and assisted them with institutional capacity building for decades. If you look at what has happened in the Ukraine conflict, this assistance, which we provided by training the Ukrainian military since 2014, is in fact perhaps the decisive element that has made Ukraine successful in its campaign. We, none of us thought that they would be where they are today in February. But the ability to have a strong NCO Corps and a leadership core in their military that was able to make independent decisions and use the weapons that have been provided by the rest of the international community when needed has allowed them to actually defend against the treacherous uh, and brutal uh, Russian intervention. So Ukraine serves as both an example of and a blueprint for the maximum effect produced by our security assistance efforts. Future success in this field depends on how closely we leverage these and other global relationships to secure common interests and promote shared values. Ukraine can also serve as a deterrent measure aimed at other malevolent actors on the global stage as they witness the enhanced capabilities that allies and partner nations, including Canada, can bring to bear during instances of unprovoked aggression. The intensity of the fighting in Ukraine has highlighted some near-term challenges, but also served to emphasize longer supply chain issues that we are working to address through our supply chain resilience initiatives. The department is well aware of the demand side challenges as well, particularly to doing barriers to doing business with the Department of Defense. 
And although DSCA is not technically a logistics or acquisition agency, both communities are at the heart of what we do. Increasing supply chain resilience in defense critical se sectors is a top priority for the department. DOD recently published a report on this topic, Securing Defense Critical Supply Chains, which is posted on the DOD website. As Canada is a key partner, I would encourage members of the Canadian government and military, as well as Canadian defense industry to read this report. One of its cross-cutting recommendations includes engagement with allies and partner nations to develop policies and arrangements that strengthen our defense industrial bases and improve supply chain resilience. We're in touch with industry every day as our requirements evolve, and we're doing the detailed work necessary to mitigate supply chain constraints and speed up production lines. The challenges here are well known. We need to increase throughput to meet current requirements, but ensure that we don't create unsustainable production capacity because of demand spikes today. Our defense industry, being a private defense industry, must answer to its shareholders and at the same time meet the requirements of government. So we must be able to present them with a reasonable profit model that they can present to their shareholders if we expect them to increase production. And this will depend on their confidence in the demand signals. We also need to resolve some obsolescence issues, parts that are no longer produced or sub-tier supplies that have gone out of business as a result of lower demand. Workforce shortages exacerbate both of these challenges. With industry feedback, we are deploying DOD authorities and investments when they can help unlock these capabilities. And we were looking across the entire portfolio of capabilities, including all allies and partner nations, so that we are not overly reliant on any one system, but on a diverse set of capabilities to achieve a mission. Despite defense supply chain issues, we continue to advance with many U.S.-Canada defense initiatives. In particular, we applaud Canada's anticipated acquisition of the F-35, which will be a significant investment for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Canada's new fleet of fighter aircraft will ensure Canada is well-equipped to help defend North America and our allies into the future and beyond. Another major initiative is the Canadian Surface Combatant, the largest defense procurement in Canadian history and the most complex shipbuilding initiative in Canada since World War II. The introduction of these surface combatants into the Royal Canadian Navy represents a critical capability, and we look forward to supporting the production of these assets. The procurement of the Canadian Surface Combatant is also notable because it is a U.S. non-program of record. That is a unique configuration or a new platform that is not typically what is available through U.S. defense stocks. It is not something we are producing for the U.S. military itself. The procurement of the Canadian surface combatant demonstrates that the United States continues to streamline efforts for non-program of record requests so that we can better support the increasing demand for unique capabilities and ones that may not be in the U.S. inventory. We are also working to develop agile and flexible policies that address emerging technology so that we can better tailor our assistance to the actual partner requirements. Since innovation is foundational to our security cooperation efforts, we understand as well that the protection of technology is paramount to how we do business. Doing so defends our industry, 
shields our allies and partners, and secures the coalition of nations. No one entity can do all of this alone. The good news is we don't have to. These and other challenges will take a combined effort of the entire U.S. security cooperation enterprise and U.S. allies and partner nations. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. So in closing, the world finds itself at the crossroads of history in what has sometimes been called a plastic moment or an inflection point, faced with the current conflict and the potential for another one. This moment and its attendant challenges underscore for us the importance and strength of alliances and partnerships. DSCA and the U.S. security cooperation community are proud to be at the leading edge of this effort for the United States and to be working with allies and partner nations like you. That concludes the formal portion of my presentation. Again, thank you, Mr. Perry. Thank you to the Canadian Global Affairs Institute for inviting me to address you this afternoon. And I will now take your questions. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. Okay, great. Uh, we've got the mics in the room uh, and invite you to make your way there if you have uh, questions for Mr. Hirsch uh, or you can send them to me direct and we'll pull them off uh, the Q&A online as well, um, which I will start doing now. Um, so the first one, I guess, would be to ask you to, to just expand a little bit uh, on your comments about the Canadian Service Combatant Program and the fact that it's a non-program of record. So there's a little bit of uniqueness to that. And I guess, uh, could you maybe just flesh that out a little bit and talk about how much flexibility is there in the U.S. government program framework uh, to support sort of outside of the, the standard kind of model U.S. program of record type of supports? I mean, how much ability do you and your team have to meet specific national um, uh, requests and circumstances? Okay. So I would say that over time, we have found increasingly that the uh, requests of our allies, the requirements of our allies and partners have required rather bespoke configurations or bespoke products uh, to be produced out of the US foreign military sales system. Our defense industry is capable of meeting these requirements. So the difficult part has been in uh, getting the US acquisition system to do so. And we have been working hard over the last several years to increase our capability and our readiness to do what are not called NCOR, non-program of records. Um, we have established within uh, the security cooperation enterprise a non-program of record community of interest, which includes industry and partner nations. And we have provided additional funds to our uh, contracting offices to cover the additional manpower that may be required in order to do non-programs of record. So we're looking at this on a continuous basis. Um, it's been addressed recently at the highest levels of the department. Uh, occasionally you hear somebody say, hey, we ought to just do things that are our programs of record and present a catalog and let people pick. And I've always said that that would only uh, survive as long as the first conversation between a allied defense minister and the secretary of defense. And then we'd have to figure out how to do it again. So we're interested in doing this right and we're interested in trying to provide the maximum support to our allies and partners. And we will be continuing to watch in the Canadian case in particular uh, to make sure that we're providing the support required. 
Thank you, uh, Nicholas. Thank you, uh, Nicholas Todd, Canadian Association of Defense and Security Industries. Just to pick up on your point of collaboration with allies, um, you know, what uh, what forum do you, are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the National Technological Industrial Base as a forum that exists enshrined in U.S. law that can be reinvigorated so that members across the you know high trust allies can start to work on some of these important issues and if you think it's a viable forum what are some of the elements that you think that we should be talking about first and foremost so a lot of this uh, work on deciding how to reach across industrial bases will be led by uh, undersecretary laplante of the uh, who's the undersecretary of uh, defense for acquisition and sustainment but I think he is focused on the NTIB as a way to uh, explore opportunities uh, for our defense industries to work together. And also another forum that has uh, risen here in the last couple of months is the Ukraine Contact Group, uh, which has asked its uh, the allies acquisition uh, executives to come together and look for places where we can cooperate across national industrial bases. So I think there's quite a bit moving in that direction. Uh, it's not quite clear yet how it comes out, but I think we're ready to explore these opportunities because clearly there is a demand signal at this time that is different from that in the past. Maybe a, a quick follow-up. So, you know, uh, part of, you know, bringing ideas to the table, there's this perception at least you know, here in Ottawa, that the NTIB is an American creation and it would be rude of us as very polite Canadians to suggest what you know, uh, we might want to, to see in terms of reinvigorating the NTIB and what it could do. What's your response to that, uh, that perception here? My response is that I think this is a key time for the Canadian government uh, to provide any input it might have. Uh, to to the American Department of Defense on how to make this work. I think we're open to ideas from partners and allies, perhaps in a way that uh, is even uh, wider than previously. And so I think we would welcome Canadian ideas on how to move forward. Thank you. If I can uh, get a question uh, to ask you to amplify a little bit what you, you talked about, about Ukraine and the, the collaboration there. Is that simply a question of, of working kind of harder in a more concentrated way? Or to what extent has support to Ukraine been done with exceptional authorities? Oh, so our presidential uh, drawdown authority is very exceptional. Um, this is something that is only done in cases of the utmost national uh, interest or where there is an emergency. And it normally is limited to a relatively small amount of money, several millions of dollars. Uh, so we have received uh, very unprecedented levels of authority to draw down out of our stocks. And it is this drawing down out of our stocks that allows that assistance to go so quickly. But it also means that we have to look carefully every time we do it to make sure that we are uh, preserving the readiness of our own uh, forces. So it doesn't serve as a model for normal for military sales, but for a situation like this, an unprecedented situation, it offers a path to provide a large amount of assistance to uh, a necessary recipient. Um, similarly, the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative Fund, which has been several billion dollars over the over recent years, uh, is an unusual uh, bespoke um, authority that has been given to us and an appropriation that has been given to us by Congress for this particular situation. 
So it's very different than uh, we've received previously. I was in the Defense Security Cooperation Agency 25 years ago. And at that time, I ran a drawdown for Bosnia. And the size of that drawdown was about $250 million. So when you think that we're now talking about almost $20 billion in assistance to Ukraine this year, you can begin to see how unprecedented and unusual this is. Okay, uh, to change uh, uh, gears a bit from that, um, question about sort of more, I guess, what would be uh, your, your kind of bread and butter work about the foreign military sales uh, process. Uh, question from a, a Canadian official working on this. Ask you to talk about what you think works best about that system and, and what do you think are areas where there's the potential to improve uh, that particular mechanism? Okay, so uh, I think that for about 80 to 90% of uh, defense sales, the foreign military sales process works very well. Uh, there are always issues in this sort of situation, and I can talk a little bit about where those come from. Um, but I, what I think works best is that, first of all, the, we believe the United States uh, defense industry provides the best products and services. So you get the right products and services out of it. But the other thing is that as a customer uh, using FMS, you get the full weight of the United States government in your negotiation with your contractor. So if you go direct commercial sales instead, it is the recipient government alone that is responsible if things go wrong in a negotiation or relationship with the US defense industry. If you come through FMS, we will try to preserve your interests. What are we trying to do to improve those cases that are difficult? Uh, we're trying to make sure we get better information up front. Uh, we're trying to make sure uh, that we are better aligned with the U.S. acquisition system, which is the large acquisition system that uh, all foreign military sales processes go through, so that we can better align with contracting timelines and so on. Um, and we are actually working through right now a foreign military sales tiger team that has been uh, commissioned by the Secretary of Defense to look at ways to further improve the efficiency of the process. It's a little early to talk about specific outcomes. Uh, but we will be uh, coming out with those over the coming months. Okay. Uh, well, thank you on, on behalf of everyone here in the room uh, who you can't see, but uh, it was very much appreciative of your thoughts today. Thank you for joining us uh, for this talk. All right. Thank you very much and best of luck. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producers, Charlotte Duval-Antoine and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.